when she's coated in red and her eyes just pop. That performance kills. She is so scary. And the way she looks at people, iconic. And then there's a moment where it shows her on stage and the stage catches fire, right? Because the electricity is, has killed, I think, the pr- principal or the English teacher, maybe both. Um, and it, start, it catches the stage on fire behind her. And when the, the fire blooms behind her and she starts walking, she's got her hands held out in this way that's like very, it's like looks like a mix between I'm manipulating the world and like clawed, but then also just like how you would stand if you were covered in something gross. It's like all three things at the same time. And she, she's walking slowly down off the stage and there's just chaos erupting behind her and that fire blooms. And I had like head to toe chills, like just seeing greatness. Friends, to episode 206 of the Ink to Film podcast, where we read the book and then see the movie. I'm James. And I'm Luke. And this week we discuss Brian De Palma's 1976 film, Carrie. I love it when we get a chance to cover these directors because they are sort of like the faces of the new Hollywood era. We've touched on people like Spielberg and Coppola, a couple that we still haven't talked about, but now we get to talk about De Palma. And he's a controversial filmmaker. Like uh, He's had some major hits that people absolutely love. And then he's had some other stuff that's controversial, but tends to uh, you know, get into sexual and violent content. Doesn't tend to, to be universally accepted. So it's, it'll be interesting to talk about how, how Carrie was sort of early in his career. And we can already see some of that. Yeah, I mean, I know next to nothing about him. I, I assume I've seen another one of his films. Um, if you, I'm you sure have. you're going to list some major films, but I also have some some movies that you probably think I've seen that I haven't, so we'll see how that goes. <laughs> a couple right off the top that I know that for a fact that you've seen. Uh, he directed Scarface in 1983. Okay, I did see Scarface, yeah. And uh, Mission Impossible in 1996. Oh, the original? Interesting. Well, I mean, not the original technically because that was a show. Right, right, the original like the Tom, film, Cruise, Tom Cruise First film. Tom Cruise yeah. one, yeah. Uh, wow, I, re- I rewatched that movie uh, last year and did not think it held up super well. <laughs> um, in my memory, I remember really liking it because I saw that movie in the theater when I was pretty it's young. Ve- it's honestly a departure but, for him, tip- for his type of films, because it's more of like he's trying to make a crowd-pleasing, big yeah. uh, budget action thriller. It's a departure in the way that it's sort and how broad it is, I would say. Right. Well, but that's beside the point. So I have seen some other De Palma films, clearly. The, you know, I mentioned the new Hollywood era and that generation of filmmakers being Spielberg and Scorsese, De Palma, Coppola. Um, I feel like I'm forgetting someone. Oh, Lucas, George Lucas. Like they're they're all students of film. They're all students of like your Alfred Hitchcocks and the and the Kurosawas and the things that came before that that inspired them. And then they're operating in a system in Hollywood where where before the studios would say like here's the film we're going to throw a director on there and they're the artistic voice 
the new Hollywood era was seeing like these filmmakers come in and make their their voices, their films, and have like a lot more control over their films. So that's sort of why it's important. And it was like a big ch- turning point in like the se- in the late sixties, early seventies. And they're also being influenced by like French New Wave films, and they're having obviously like cultural upheaval with like the Vietnam War going on, and and like time before and after that, and uh, just a lot of that sort of stuff in the culture changing. So yeah, I mean, it, like to to think about De Palma's career with a lot of that going forward. Yeah. So last week we covered the book, um, and I put out a call for any women who read Stephen King to write in and let us know how they feel about his depictions of women, because we had opinions last week. But you know, obviously we're not women, so I, I wanted to to see what people's thoughts were on that, um, and we did get somebody who responded. Uh, so thank you. We got uh, Gloria wrote in. And she said, quote, I've been reading Stephen King since middle school, and I'm in my late 30s now. I did not pick up on his less than ideal way of depicting women in his writing until I was older. In my opinion, his depiction of women in his writing is very uneven. He has plenty of female characters that I feel are written well. Examples include Wendy from The Shining and Holly Gibney from The Outsider. And he'll also use female characters as throwaway plot devices or unnecessary descriptions of female bodies when there is no need for it. This doesn't prevent me from enjoying his writing, since I think he still writes good stories with engaging characters. There are a lot of worse writers out there who cannot write women. And then she goes on to list a few. So I'm going to cut down this a little bit for time. But yeah, I mean, when I want to react to that. I, I That seems to me in line with what I would kind of expect <laughs> would be people's reaction. I think that's that. That's sort of my what I get out of Stephen King's depiction of women as well, and like I think it's to be expected, especially uh, a man, who, white guy whose career spans like fifty years or whatever at this yeah. point. Like it doesn't surprise me that uh, he's he's had some less than ideal portrayals of women, but also like I think we've seen some really really uh, fully realized characters who have a lot of agency that that um, I expect a lot of women respond to. Yeah, and at, this is the perspective of somebody who grew up reading Stephen King and clearly is a fan. Um, and I would I would say that there is probably many out there who would say that they bounced off of Stephen King because they, they encountered something they just didn't like and so swore off. So that that is definitely the other side of that. Um, but yeah, I mean, he's a massive... He's, he's as close to a rock star in and you know genre fiction as there is um he's basically like like the mick jagger of horror (laughs) (laughs) um and you know because of that it's like you're gonna have everybody's got an opinion on stephen king there's lots of to criticize there's lots to praise you know it's it's that's just how it is when you, you got a superstar like this yeah i was reading and thinking a lot about how much it may have impacted Stephen King's reputation within the horror community and just in general, like his his name, because he was such an unknown quantity at the time that like Carrie was being made. People had definitely been reading him. Well, but I think o- only his short fiction, really. I mean, the, Carrie was his first published novel. It came out in 74. This movie comes right. out in 76. That's a short turnaround. He's fairly. I actually read that they uh, in the original poster, they like misspelled his name, misspelled Stephen <laughs> King's name. They, they, they oh, added with a, a v. v. Yep. So, like, you know, just thinking about a time before Stephen King had the name that he <laughs> yeah. has is, is really funny. fascinating. And how the popularity of this film, which wasn't expected to be this massive hit necessarily, I think people were hopeful, but this this film potentially helped shape Stephen King's 
reputation, you know, and and like to to have him like be continued to be read as he has for the last like yeah forty or fifty years. Well, and as we know, because we've covered a lot of these projects now, like there's there's just a different stratosphere of popularity from popular in the in the book world to mainstream popularity that like a film can reach. So of course, yeah, he's maybe popular. His book's doing well. I think it was one of those like. Um, just like a hot item, like it was selling tons of copies. And so they decide to adapt it. And then I think that builds the buzz around the book, right? So people hear it's being adapted. And so they're going to rush out and buy it. And then the movie comes out. And of course, every time a a big adaptation comes out, especially one that's well-received, you're just going to get tons of people buying this book. So, I mean, and that's one of the, that's one of the biggest ways that authors get paid in adaptations. Not a lot of people know this. Like sometimes, you know, authors get paid a decent amount for their, uh, to sell the rights, but often they don't, especially if they're not as well known a quantity. And uh, what they end up getting out of it is increased book sales because it becomes the adaptation can become essentially the best commercial you could ever have for a book, right? Because <laughs> just so many people will see something, and go, "Oh, that was there's a book written on, uh, based on that this was based on." I want to find out more. I want more of this story. And so then they go to the book and we see that right. happen all the time. Yeah. I, and like uh, we, I think we mentioned it last week, but Stephen King was only paid like 2,500 bucks or something like this for the adaptation rights. Yeah. And um, that he, I, I also read that he was like, I don't care. He's like, yeah. you know, obviously like, I mean, it, I mean, it was massive for his career and he, he sold so many copies based off of this movie. So <laughs> yeah. And he, you know, interestingly enough, likes this movie a lot. Uh, I believe because it. like there there are times that the adaptation he hasn't been as happy with. Yeah, no, this one I can see why he would like it. I can see that it kind of lines up with his his sensibilities in horror. Like mm-hmm. whenever you see stuff that he's heavily involved with, it feels a little bit more like this. Like it's a very there, this movie, in my opinion, is very of a time. It feels very seventies horror to me, and I think Stephen King just loves that feel. Um, and it's also kind of over the top uh, in many of its things that it does. Right. And Stephen King is absolutely that way. Like he loves over the top horror things that are just larger than life. And, and in my opinion, sometimes it works better in a book than it does on screen. But, you know, I think it does work well here. So, yeah. Well, I'm going to be interested to hear your thoughts on this movie. But I do want to think about this as we go forward is that like this is early very early for De Palma as well. Okay. He had a film that has now since become a cult favorite called Sisters in 1972, which actually King was a fan of, which made him feel comfortable with obviously De Palma creating this adaptation. Um, But so it wasn't a massive success of a film, but it was enough of a success to where he could um, come aboard a film like Carrie. And this, this movie really was his first big hit. And okay. so like, it's interesting to think of King and De Palma coming up together at the same time because of this. Yeah. One well, of- and, and, and they're, they're inextricably linked, right? Like right. their careers um, and both of them benefit from Carrie. The linking that goes on with this film and other things in the film community. And like, like we've talked about with King and, and all this other stuff is it's, there's a lot to talk about, but for, before we get into that stuff, I'd love to hear what were your thoughts on the, on the film? Yeah. So as I mentioned last week, I'd never seen this movie. However, there were like a half dozen things from it that when I heard, I went, Oh, Oh, because I recognize it. Like I've heard these things a million times. I've heard these quotes. 
I've heard certain sound effects. Like there's a very particular uh, ring, 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 ring sound. Yeah. <laughs> that I, I don't know. That's you know probably in other is, movies, right? but I, that is that a reference to Psycho? Is that, is yeah. that what that is? Okay. Yes. Which I was expect. I, I thought you'd pick up on for sure. But my favorite filmmakers tend to be like students of film and then like uh, homage f- sort of filmmakers. And like yeah. I, the part of this is De Palma leaning into his most Hitchcockian things because we get like there's there's a lot of Hitchcock specifically psycho things that that pop up in this film but also the score was heavily influenced by Bernard Herrmann who was longtime Hitchcock uh collaborator De Palma was so intrigued by the noises and and the the sort of tone that the the score set in in films like Psycho and Vertigo that he would basically put it in this film like I mean there are moments where I think it's the exact same score mm Interesting. There's the sort of like buildup that is famous from Hitchcock's films where like he's building all the suspense and building all the suspense. And you can see De Palma being influenced by that because of like the the setup for the blood, the bucket scene is so long. And it's so we look at the bucket multiple times. and It's these slow moves up to the bucket, looking down and pushing in to like look at Carrie in the in the background and like building up that sort of suspense is like I think him as his influence as well as. I mean, there's there's a mother with a knife coming down like this. It <laughs> yeah. looks an awful lot like the whole situation that happens in Psycho. But I felt like the movie was a bit dated for me in some ways. Um, stranger than I was expecting. It's kind of a strange movie in a lot of ways. Um, has definitely some issues, uh, I would say, with male gay stuff. Um potentially other problems. I don't know. Just some of some of the early stuff, I was like, eh, I don't know. It's okay. Um, but then I think there are true moments of brilliance, clearly iconic sequences that uh, are sort of enshrined in horror legacy and, and, and the, 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 the ring of honor for like horror films and horror scenes. I feel like the prom scene in Carrie is probably in there. Um, so there's a lot to love here too. And clearly an important movie in, in the history of horror um, so I'm excited to learn more about it. But yeah, for me, it's just like a, a movie watching it for the first time in 2021. Uh, I think it's I think it's a good movie. Um, I wouldn't go so far as to call it great in my tastes, but um, I can see that it is a great movie historically. Mm-hmm. How did you feel about it? So uh, and, and you'd seen it before, right? I had seen it before, but didn't remember it really anything and had sort of like let let the memory of it shape how I felt about the movie and I felt like seeing it this time I saw it completely through new eyes like fresh eyes and well, I honestly was too, so. <laughs> right that that helps always and I, I was blown away to be honest with you like I uh, fully agree with the fact that there's like tons of like uh, like gratuitous nudity nudity yeah. that's like the movie's very male. horny it felt it just felt supremely horny and I get that like there's this sort of like teenage like coming of age like hormonal thing that he's trying to do as well but at the same time like it's, it's specifically boys you know what I mean like it's targeted at heterosexual boys it feels like to me correct yeah, so the nudity stuff is like there's there's definitely a couple things here and there that that you know we've talked about like people characters slapping other characters in the face like tends to be like this over dramatic thing that happens many times in this film too. But like barring that stuff, I think that the filmmaking techniques that are in this film, I was not expecting to be as one inventive and fun and like creative. Uh, specifically a lot of the editing that was done and the way that things were shot. I was like, damn, this is like a lot of the things that we see continuing on today and even some of the things that were just like sort of, 
uh, these, like I said, these filmmakers were reacting to French New Wave, which was breaking the mold of what a film could be. And they were taking all of that and taking these traditional Hollywood values, things like Hitchcock, merging them in ways to where it's unexpected. Things can be jarring to an audience, but also like if you're thinking of it in the way that like what the director's trying to to represent, there's more there than just like wanting to do split screen for the sake of doing split screen. That's not a normal thing to do in a film. And like the the way that you're able to play with that, I just thought was a lot of fun. And then overall, the film just like, um, I thought that some of the stuff that they decided to leave out made sense for this adaptation because they did change the character of Carrie, I think a lot. Um, and, and ultimately that portion of the story is still, still remains to be true is that it's a very character driven story that people can latch onto and like these these characters do become like sort of larger than life and over the top but it is it's a horror movie so it's to be expected i think the mom is like a caricature almost of like yeah. a, of like a religious zealot or something and yeah like it but it, it works for me i like, found I, margaret in the book to be a lot more intimidating and frightening woman yeah this woman was kind of bizarre. <laughs> it worked for me though. Like I'm like like all these things I'm bringing up. Like that they, they tended to work yeah, for me. I can see it. There's also a lot of other stuff like that I've appreciated more, having obviously read intentions and the other things that were going on. Um, there's a documentary that I had seen before that I that I went back and watched a specific section of, and it was it's just called De Palma. It's a documentary from like 2015, and. Um, hearing him sort of give his perspective on some of the stuff that he was wanting to do and carry it makes a lot of sense he's a very confident director who will sort of say what's on his mind so hearing his perspective on a lot of that stuff is interesting too because he talks about like other adaptations and how other adaptations of this work have failed and he's like uh i see what the filmmaker was trying to do and those were the the roadblocks that we avoided and so like getting to basically react to the fact that like his was the most successful version of this fi- of this adaptation and and why he thinks that was. So I would recommend people check that out. So he's to, he, is he comparing it to later adaptations of Carrie? Because this was the first one. So you're saying what, what other filmmakers have tried. To other do. filmmakers saw the original Carrie. There's a sequel. There's a TV show. And then there's the 2013 adaptation. Mm-hmm. And so like all of them had the advantage of having seen what De Palma did. And he said like them trying to adapt it they chose the wrong things, I guess. He, <laughs> yeah. he, they, he, they ran into the things surprise, that he... Surprise, surprise, he, he finds this to be the best. <laughs> I mean, and it probably is. I, I've heard that it's considered the definitive edition, so I get it. And a lot of people are going to feel that way about their own work, obviously. But yeah, I, I do recommend people check it out. And it's also interesting to, to sort of get his background and, and uh, his, the mark that he's left on cinema because it is, it is pretty massive. Um, he's a pretty influential figure. Yeah, I, and you know, I want to just clarify that I could tell the movie was well made. Um, I, you know, it, it is well. I, I could, I could feel a lot of the intention behind it. Even those early, that early locker room scene, which is, you know, clearly the most gratuitous, just a slow pan through a women's locker room with a bunch of high school girls. Yeah, fully new. Well, not to mention slow mo, slow motion, which it, which isn't necessarily like again, those are like form breaking things that weren't super popular in film. So like he's using slow-mo when people not many people are so so i want to say like it felt very gratuitous to me um however i can see it also as an attempt to sort of create almost i I kept thinking of like renaissance paintings Mm -hmm. um where you're sort of like just reveling in the beauty of the human form and the slow motion made it feel kind of like heavenly and ethereal um, now, again, I think that's very tied into the male perspective because it's like, especially when you're a teenage boy and like there's like 
the girl's locker room. It's like, oh my gosh, w- what would it be like? And like De Palma's like, this is what it's like, <laughs> yeah. Um, which is like obviously not w- what it would really be like. But I-, I don't know that that's the way I got. That's the way I felt about it. And then yeah, even when we first see Carrie, she's like slowly caressing herself in the shower, and like it's very sexual the entire right. scene. And then it's yeah. sort of interrupted by the blood and and her um, screaming and her screaming um, here and throughout. I, I thought was like some of the harshest, most grating screams I've ever heard in a movie. Mm-hmm. Um, it was it was like I I felt like I needed to turn it down every time it happened. It was like I'm gonna <laughs> blow out my speakers or something because it was just so intense. Um, mm-hmm. And there was a lot of sounds like that in this movie that. Um, it's not like they're jump scares, but they they are just like upsetting to hear sounds. Yeah, and those screams are one of them for me. Intentionally, obviously, right? It's like yeah. it's it's to make you uncomfortable, to put you on edge, and like horror movies do want to do that. And so my point being, like, I can tell that things are intentional. I can tell that it's being made with skill. Um, I like that it. There were certain attempts to make this movie feel like a high school dramedy maybe Mm -hmm. that is also a horror movie like on top of it and i appreciated that it's like it's it's it was uh it's it's a very film thing right like there's certain sequences where it felt like he's referencing certain like high school comedy movies or high school like heartwarming going to the dance kind of movies right um and specifically i could feel that and and i appreciated that because like i mean it's the same reason why i love like um Predator in retrospect is it's like Predator is a action, you know, bunch of masculine dudes with huge muscles and they're just like out in the jungle and they're a bunch of badasses. And you take this like war movie action hero movie and then you put a horror movie on top of it where they are the victims of a relentless monster. And it's like two movies are happening at once in the way that in the language of film, those movies interact is really interesting. And I felt like I was getting a bit of that here where it's like two different movies happening at the same time. Um, so I liked all of that. Um, and I could tell it was just really well, really well crafted. I just overall felt like it, I don't know, didn't, it didn't appeal to me as like a great movie in the way that some of the other ones we've watched are, but I did enjoy it for the most part. Yeah. I mean, that's fair. Um, I, I definitely agree with what you're saying about, uh, taking a high school story because even some of the telekinesis stuff was played down until we were getting closer to the end. So it really is just this like character piece about this like tortured girl by bullies, by her home life and all these other things that eventually lead into this moment of her finally feeling comfortable in her own skin and then everything comes crashing down and it's like horrific tragedy. Yeah. And, um, and you know, I thought that it was executed really well. The, the we'll get to the scenes once we start talking about more plot. But um, I I I recommend it to people. I think that if you're a fan of horror, you're gonna you're going to get a lot out of it. And um, the influence is is very far reaching. And um, what what are your recommendations on that? Oh yeah, absolutely recommend watch it. I mean, I'm glad I watched it. And it, it definitely, uh, if you're a fan of like classic horror and and you missed it like I did yeah good time to remedy it oh and i did also want to say this is our final uh quarterly project for 2021 uh thank you to our patrons who voted for this in our poll um if you wanted to get in on the uh quarterly polls we're going to have a new one for 2022 um so sign up and uh you'll be able to vote on the next one 
Yeah, so I wanted to get into some of the other details surrounding the film before we talk Brian De Palma specifically, um, okay. because uh, just to like put in perspective the success of this film, um, Carrie is all but unanimously praises one of the scariest horror movies of all time. It's on the AFI list of uh, 100 scariest films. It's on the 1001 films to see before you die. We just talked about that in our oh, okay. bonus episodes. Yeah, I can see. I can see all of that. This makes that list as well. And I'm probably angering people by not saying this movie's great, at least for me. Like, I can recognize its greatness. It's more of just, like, would I personally rate it as among the great movies I've seen? To me, it falls just shy of that. But I can see why people would say that, yeah. Yeah, so the, uh, it was a smash hit. It turned $1.8 million investment into a $33.8 million moneymaker. So it, you know, nearly you know, 20 times its, its uh, budget at the box mm. office. Wow. Um, and it's interesting because like to hear De Palma talk about it, he was like, I want to make this for 1.8. This is what it's going to require. I know for a fact. And the studio was like, no, 1.6. And he he was determined to get the 1.8. So he basically said, uh, it's going to be 1.8 or I'm not making it. And then the studio started like removing the furniture and taking everything out of his office basically to say that he was fired. And then he was like, you know what? I can try to make it for 1.6. And then they went to make it for 1.6 and ultimately it cost 1.8. So like he, <laughs> he ended up uh, making the movie. That so they wanted, called, think, they kind of called his bluff on it. But then in the, in the end, he got his 1.8. And then he was like, look, we're almost done. We just, you know, we need a little bit more. That's how he yeah. just eked it out, I guess. Maybe he was like, that's once I, once I start making it, they'll, Maybe I'll be able to get a little bit more interesting. Yeah. So Lucas and De Palma and Spielberg, a lot of these people were very close. And Lucas and De Palma were casting for Star Wars and Carrie at the exact same time. And they wow. decided to do joint auditions. And so Amy <laughs> Irving, who played Sue in Carrie, almost played Princess Leia in Star wow. Wars. She was the next person. And also... Carrie was considered to be played by Carrie Fisher. William Cat, who plays Tommy, was almost Luke Skywalker. Like I'm telling you, like these <laughs> these joint auditions, and they were basically not fighting over who would play for who would play in whose movie and stuff, but they were that close. That's so so in in the joint audition where you you show up and you're I assume you're auditioning for both roles at the same. Right. Same time while you're there, or I don't know if it was the same time necessarily, but probably. So you're like doing one scene and then you're doing another scene of, of each. Yeah, there's literally video of Amy Irving reading Princess Leia's lines from Star Wars. Neither of these movies, I don't think people knew were going to be these massive hits, especially you know, right. Star Wars, obviously. So I'm wondering if there was like a preference between the two, or if you were just happy if you got either of them. Because to me, it seems like you're like, oh well, Carrie Carrie got Leia. That's the better role in retrospect. But at the time, was she disappointed she didn't get to be Carrie White in this horror it's movie? It's possible. Yeah, no, it's possible. I'm sure that people have asked about it in the past. Well, they're both lesser known, you know, at this point, and yeah. it's early going. So it's it's very interesting to hear them tell these stories because meanwhile, like Spielberg's trying to make Jaws. It's all going on simultaneously. And so all these people yeah. and they're different, the different films that are like what, kind of overlapping. What a time in movies, huh? Yeah, 70s, man. I do. I, I mean, like, I, I want to talk more about this kind of stuff when we get into the actual scenes. But I have to talk about some of the cinematography things that I mentioned. And specifically, um, we've talked about the split diopter before, which basically splits the the lens in the center and it creates two different depths of field that are okay. both in focus at the same time. And there's those scenes where like Tommy's re like having his poetry read and in yep. the background you can see Carrie, they're both in frame, but Tommy's much larger. Yep. Um, using that is so much fun. And, that, and some of these techniques become like a De Palma staple. Like he continues to use the diopter uh, the split screen that I've mentioned is like a 
that's a hallmark of a De Palma film. And he uses it to great effect in a lot of his films. Like it'll be like, there's a scene in one of his films where like someone's trying to clean up blood from like a, a murder or something like that. And then another person's like on their way into the hotel up to the room. And so both of these scenes are playing side by side. And that's something you can't achieve in film unless you're cut cross cutting. All right. Can but you, can you, um, well, real quick, I'm going to have you list some of the other movies he's directed because I want to know if I've seen any other ones, but I did want to react to what you're talking about with the diopter stuff too. Um, I had that written down because I was like, this is a kind of an odd. Now, it may, you said that we, we've talked about this before, but like I noticed it here um, because there were times where like the the zooms didn't really match up and like the, the blurring was kind of odd. You, you could tell something strange was going on well, when you're using um, it practically, like if you're doing a real diopter shot, you're going to get a little bit of blur in the center of the lens right from where the split happens. Which yeah. is, but if you're looking, most of the time you can see them. Yeah, so I, I noticed that, and I and I was wondering what the what is the effect that you're going for when you do something like that? If you could try and like put a put a name yeah. to it. I mean, it could be many things, right? But I would say, let's say that that specific scene, right? Tommy is reading his, mm-hmm. his the teacher's reading Tommy's poetry. We're seeing yeah. his reaction, We're seeing his to reaction, it. and Carrie, and then Carrie's reaction simultaneously. But like everything else is kind of out of focus is what was right. weird is like you could see both of them. But then there's like a, this like haziness around mm-hmm. like Tommy's head. It happens again later during the exercise scene with the with a teacher, I think, is in the foreground. And then the all the, the girls yep. are in the back. Um, that was another one I noticed. I mean, I think it creates a really cool effect where when you're in a close up on a character, you're in their head. You're trying to see their facial reaction and make out what they're thinking and what they're doing. And then also, typically, if you're in a close-up, you can't get anything else in the frame. But to have that close-up in the frame with the girls exercising in the background, you know sort of what's going on and what her headspace is in addition to getting something more interesting to and look I, at. So, And I guess both are like, brought to the fore right like they're both important equally normally yeah normally and and this is something De Palma talked about in that documentary actually is uh as a filmmaker you're you're showing the audience what to look at you're like boom here's something to look at if you're showing the audience two things to look at at the same time they have to make a decision at that point Mm -hmm. which normally you're not they don't have to do and so for them to make a decision it puts them on their back foot it's something sort of like abnormal which in a horror film you're always trying to sort of invoke that at least at times depending on the kind of horror film you're trying to make okay so it almost makes you feel a little bit uneasy uneasy and then also you're talking about the scene with the teacher in the foreground and the the girls working on the background it's like what what did you focus on like did you go back and forth back and forth yeah you know and and like i think that that's a fun interesting thing that you can do with film uh using different technology and 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 it's notable i think like i said it becomes it becomes a staple of his filmmaking and it also is unnatural right like that's not how we focus on things in real life so like it is i can see it kind of being weird which is, you know, an interesting effect for for a horror movie because you're you're yeah. Otherwise, there's nothing scary about the scene, but if something something about it is making you feel a little bit off kilter, then yeah, yeah. I guess so works. other another couple of things I have to mention as far as the the fun cinematography techniques that are being used here. So we had the split diopter, um, these really interesting slow dissolves that I love to see in films where uh, an image will be dissolving as another is coming in. And you get this moment where two images are overlaid. So specifically for me, I think of the one nearing the end of the film with Carrie and then like the burning car in the background are like right on top of each other. So it's like the fire and Carrie's looks like she's on fire a little bit, but as that slow dissolve fades, it shows just Carrie. And so, you know, I love seeing that sort of stuff used intentionally as well. Did you notice the moment in the prom when they sped up the film? 
Oh, you're talking before the prom. Yeah, before yeah. the prom, and they sped up the film, and it was like, yeah, they literally played played it fast. That's that's so bold to do in a film. To, that's to one of the. Break that's the, one of the. I think that might have been the moment where I wrote down, "This is kind of a strange movie." <laughs> yeah, like to break the mold and to do that is like very bold. And uh, uh, there's like the the kaleidoscope effects that we get some of the time during the sequence during the prom sequence, the the, the blood sequence we'll get to eventually. Um, a lot of things that are homages to Hitchcock. The moment when Sue sort of sees the the rope and it extends up to the top of the ceiling where the bucket is and stuff when she comes to the prom. Um, and how extended that is and how much tension it builds up and then her yeah. slow motion reaction under the stage and then the teacher reacting. And um, it's very Hitchcockian. And I just think it's it's fun to to recognize those things and, and recognize why they're doing it and why he's he almost seems like an extension of what Hitchcock would be doing in that era. If he had continued on as a filmmaker, it had come up in that era. So I, I love that kind of stuff. Yeah, it's interesting, right? Like he's a young filmmaker who is clearly still trying to find his own voice. And so he leans heavily on his influence, right, in, in Hitchcock. Yep. And we see that a lot, you know, in, in any kind of art. And you definitely see it in writers who are heavily influenced. And um, then, you know, maybe they develop into something different over time. Um, but that, that influence is still kind of there. So, All right. So I want to talk about De Palma just a little bit. Brian De Palma is an American film director and screenwriter with a career spanning over 50 years. He is best known for his work in the suspense, crime, and psychological thriller genres. His prominent films include mainstream box office hits such as Carrie, 1976, Dress to Kill, 1980, Scarface, 1983, The Untouchables, 1987, and Mission Impossible, 1996, as well as cult favorites such as Sisters, 1972, Phantom of the Paradise, 1974, Blowout, 1981, Body Double, 1984, Casualties of War, 1989, Carlito's Way, 1993, Femme Fatale, 2002, and Passion, 2012. I've seen Carlito's Way. Nice. Was that around the time that you saw Scarface? In like, Scarface, I, I actually, I think, I think it was not around the same time, but I, um, that makes sense. That it's the same director. I didn't know that, but uh, yeah, those two movies have a similar feel, and I think they both are starring Al Pacino. All, both right? Al Pacino, yeah, yeah, yeah. So, so De Palma is often cited as a leading member of the new Hollywood generation of film directors. His directing style often makes use of quotations from other films or cinematic styles and bears the influences of filmmakers such as Alfred Hitchcock and Jean Luc Godard. His films have been criticized for their violence and sexual content, but have also been championed by prominent American critics such as Roger Ebert and Pauline Kael. Yeah, I can totally see that too, right? In I don't know. It's like, uh, you know, I'm presenting the, the female gaze um, versus male gaze issue as a criticism. Some people won't care about that, mostly men. Um, who, But if you're a woman, this is something that in the modern day we are more aware of, I feel like, where it's being talked about more, where it's like, it seems like all these movies have scenes like this, right? Or, or, or you know, maybe it's not as fully nude, but like, where the camera is clearly being motivated from like a heterosexual male's gaze as it's looking at women usually. Um, and it's it's an interesting criticism because some people find it to be a very like social justice thing that they balk at and other people like that's enough to make or break a movie for them. Yeah. Um, so, you know, to each their own, I guess, and how important it is to you. There's also interesting things with America and nudity, which is yeah. like, but that's aside from the fact that like, clearly this is the male gaze and it's very much like speaking yeah. to the male gaze. Like, I, I don't think well, because I don't mind nudity in a movie and 
you know, even like sexy sequences are fine to me. Um, I just feel like if I'm going to talk about it on a podcast, I have to like highlight that I recognize that this is a very, this is being directed at young boys, right? Like, cause clearly the, the, you know, they thought a bunch of teenagers were going to go see this movie. And I think that's who he's trying to appeal to. Um, and probably worked really well. Um, I do think there's a lot for women in this movie too, honestly, because I think the, uh, the female characters are, are quite well written, um, which translates from the book. And I think there was even more of an effort to make the women more front and center. Um, especially Chris, I think becomes a little bit more front and center as like a villainous character. Um, She's definitely that in the book, but like she shares the spotlight more with Billy, whereas here it felt like there was a deliberate effort to put it more on her and make Billy into more of a tool for her to use. Um, and, and really, it comes back to Chris being the sort of architect of everything awful, um, which maybe the book has that implication. But Billy is his own dangerous, uh, fierce, like kind of, I don't know fearsome right word you know he is he is his own dangerous kind of uncontrollable thing that uh it feels like chris doesn't necessarily know what she's messing with when she's like trying to manipulate him um whereas here it feels like yeah she's kind of got him wrapped around her finger yeah i agree with that i mean like i think the the change in some of the characters makes sense because you have to kind of unify under like one villain and it seems like they wanted to lean more heavily on the mother being the villain. I think they they minimized Billy's sort of impact in the story to show that maybe Chris was manipulating him more and she was more the villain. So like we, she had it at, at home and at school. Chris is the villain at school. Her mother is the villain at home. And like ultimately we see sort of how those two factors like play into her eventually like losing it. It's I'm almost wondering if there was like an attempt to appeal to the male <laughs> audience because the movie's going to be primarily about four different women. And <laughs> maybe he thought some guys wouldn't want to see this movie if they heard that. But then when he's like, I'm going to put the most gratuitous <laughs> nude scene right at the beginning of it. So I'm sure everyone was talking about that. Oh, you got to yeah. go see this movie. Well, and so like I talked about like the, the reason I mentioned like the, the American audience too is like, um, this is a generation of filmmakers pushing back against the norm and like the status quo. And they're also being influenced by European filmmaking. And right. so like European filmmaking, including a lot more nudity, a lot more sexuality and stuff. And so it's it's not only controversial, which is something that these filmmakers were looking to do. It's also like in the vein of something that they're being influenced by with the European yeah. films. That makes sense. I think it's time we jump into the plot here. We can talk more about some of the performances along the way as well. Yeah, got lots uh, of thoughts. Yeah, tons of good scenes to talk about. So, Carrie White lives with her fanatically religious mother, Margaret. She is unpopular at school and often bullied by her peers. When Carrie experiences her first period in the school shower, she panics, having never been told about this process. Carrie's classmates humiliate her by throwing tampons at her until the gym teacher, Miss Collins, intervenes. After arriving home, Margaret tells Carrie that her menstruation was caused by sin, and she locks Carrie in an altar-like prayer closet to pray for forgiveness. At school, Collins reprimands Carrie's tormentors, punishing them with a week-long detention during gym class. Carrie's longtime bully, the wealthy and popular Christine, Chris Harginson, walks out and loses her prom privileges. This is where I think we get a, a, a sort of invented for the movie scene where Margaret goes over to Sue Snell's mother's house and we get it from sort of the mother's perspective. 
as she welcomes Margaret in, who has come over to, it seems like, preach or talk about Jesus <laughs> to her. And uh, Sue Snell's mother is sort of dismissive of this, offers to give her some money, which then Margaret realizes means she's not actually interested in hearing any of this. And so then Margaret gets kind of upset about it, it seems like. And then right before she leaves, she turns and like raises her hand up and does this like, you know, Jesus be with you moment. And yeah. I thought that was a cool sort of foreshadowing maybe to her stabbing um, with the power of Jesus later on. She she is very evangelical, um, over the top. Uh, I found this character to be a little bit more pitiful than frightening. And I think that's why, to me, the, the, the version of Margaret in the book is more frightening. Um, this, yeah. this version, I, I just felt sorry for her. She's so delusional. Um, she's also, I felt like the actor is, you know, significantly younger than I was expecting. Um, she felt like she's not, I mean, maybe it's just because I'm older now, but I'm like, this is a, a young woman <laughs> and who's clearly, you know, very um, misguided. And then she also, I don't know, some of about it, something about it just felt unreal to me too. Like this didn't strike me as a real person. And so, yeah, I don't know, it lost me a little bit there, too. Yeah, I can see that. I, I think this film does change the perspective a little bit. And whereas in the in the book, I think we're kind of getting a perspective on the outside world from like a high school. Like we're the, the reader potentially supposed to be more close to the high school perspective. And I think the film like just naturally gives us more of an adult view on everything that's going on. So seeing this character as a mother and yeah. realizing that like she is obviously like she has had some hardships in her life that have also led her to this point. I can yep. see what you're saying about her being pitiful. And then also, but but like you think of it from the, from the perspective of that person raising a child and how damaging that can be and everything. Oh, for it's sure. still ri- very scary. It just, and, and I think ultimately like this, this movie is like drawing attention to the fact that you're watching a movie too, right? Like it is, it's not this like dramatic uh, film that's like trying to pre like give you realism necessarily. I think there's a lot of this over the top, and I and I do think uh, like you've said. I think for maybe for for an aud- modern audience, it it could be harder to jump onto. But in I think in the 70s, this character is scary to people because I think you're dealing with a cultural change where the households were very religious historically in America, and like you're dealing with that kind of turning over, and all these people are re- sort of rebelling against their parents. And yeah. I think Carrie is obviously like a metaphor for that. Really, like the idea that like kids are pushing back against the old way of, of being brought up, which tended to be very religious. Um, well, and that ties directly into some of the themes that we were talking about for the book. And those are definitely present here too. Um, and that's the, th- you know, the theme surrounding women's empowerment, um, women sort of, there, there was this women's liberation movement happening at the time. And this movie is, you know, focused on a bunch of women and their relationships to one another and uh, the power that Carrie asserts, and she's young, she's a teenager pushing back against um, her mother who represents the old ways, right? So I think that's all there, but what's interesting is I think, and I'm gonna, I'm gonna sort of defend this as we go, I feel like the movie's ultimate message is, is, is shifted from what Stephen King's ultimate message was with, with his book. Um, it feels like it ends in a slightly different spot, which yeah. we'll get to when we get to the end. As far as like what it's trying to say is different, I think. I totally agree. Um, 
So I did want to mention some of the stuff you might be picking up on too is uh, upon landing the part, Lori, who is Piper Lori, who plays Margaret, thought her character was so histrionic and over the top that the movie had to be a dark comedy. De Palma had to constantly remind her on set that they were making a horror movie instead. Uh, <laughs> she would often erupt with laughter during takes as she found the character so ridiculous. I could see it, man. She looked like she was about to laugh sometimes. Yeah. Um, which is, that's a funny story, but, you know, again, I, I just, I, this version of Margaret wasn't super frightening to me. Yeah. Uh, one thing I did want to touch on is the difference in how Carrie looks. Um, and I know this is kind of a big deal for a lot of people. Because Stephen King has a bad habit of demonizing people who are overweight. And um, it's something that we haven't hit him on too hard for in the past, but it's definitely something there, right? Like he has a lot of characters who, if they're overweight, they're viewed as slothful and sinful and they tend to be bad. Um, and you know, you, you can tie personal growth to them getting in shape and things like that. There's just a lot of um, sort of anti-fat uh, stuff in his books, to put in lack of a better term. However, Carrie, I think a lot of women loved that she was kind of described as being a little bit chubby, a little bit homely, a little bit um, just plain, and she got bullied for all those reasons, yet she ends up having this power now yes he does describe her as like looking actually beautiful and stuff at the prom which is like a whole thing right so she does kind of transform but a lot of people feel like there's an essential thing with a character looking that way and in this movie and we can compare this to many other times this has happened in adaptations (laughs) Uh, the actor they get to play this character is already good looking and already skinny and already, I mean, we're starting off with her as a sexual object, basically in the shower. Right. Um, whereas that's very different than the Carrie we got in the book, who is definitely not viewed that way, at least early on. Yeah. I I mean, like this is something that Hollywood's always been, obviously got a long history of doing this, right? (laughs) It has a long history of this being the, the, the thing that happens in like in the seventies, I'm sure it was no different because actors are actors are beautiful people. (laughs) So they, yeah. The other thing that I noticed was like the aging up, like everyone looked like they're about 35 in this. Well, yeah, that's because you're, you're, yeah, you're casting mid twenties actors to play kids in high school. Right. Which, which again is another Hollywood trend that's been done forever. Yeah, I mean, and we're so used to it now, but like, I don't know, if you take this movie and you you actually cast age appropriate, which you couldn't do for some of these scenes because they'd be underage, but like, right, to have age appropriate uh, actors across the board would really change the feel of this movie because you're right, like this does feel like mid-20s and up. <laughs> it just feels like a more adult film. It feels than like they're like in college. The, yeah, yeah. So De Palma was set on Amy Irving in the role, who pl- who went on to play Sue. But when uh, the production designer, Jack Fisk, suggested his wife, Sissy Spacek, audition, everything changed. Wow. Yeah. So originally, cool. Sue was to be Carrie, and then Sissy came in and apparently uh, wore a sailor, for the audition, wore a sailor dress made for her as a child and smeared Vaseline in her hair prior to the audition, uh, which she had out of the park. De Palma gave Spacek the role. He cast Amy Irving as Sue Snell instead, and Nancy Allen had been promised the role of Sue Snell, so De Palma cast her as Chris Hargensen. 
So like everybody shifted over. <laughs> it's so funny, like the jumping. Yeah, you're shifting from characters who are like so different from one another, really. Um, but yeah, you, it's like you, you they want you in the movie, so you're gonna play this other character now. Yeah, that's funny. And, and so SpaceX apparently was so committed to the role too that like she would isolate herself in her trailer, which we actually we just talked about on the haunting uh, in our mm-hmm. bonus episode, uh, which was the adaptation of the Haunting of Hill House. SpaceX isolated herself in her room, and she would like put all kinds of religious regalia on the walls and everything like that to sort of like get herself in that headspace um and i'm sure what couldn't have been a a, you know a comfortable thing to do for herself but also she apparently would examine she was examining like wounded people for a lot of like the time that she wanted to seem defeated and like 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 sort of pressed upon by somebody else Mm. and so she kept looking at like sort of religious depictions of stoning and stuff like that and wanted to sort of get into the poses that those people were doing for a lot of moments in the film when she was supposed to be like defeated or being beaten down Um, and so like very interesting like headspace to get into for an actor and ultimately it seemed like it worked because she was nominated for best leading actress at 1977 academy awards she killed it honestly her performance is spectacular um i was definitely taken with it as much as i sort of criticized the the look you know what i mean like that doesn't change that she did a fantastic job um she does have a very memorable face um it's there's something about it that is very unique um she kills a lot of different scenes here that i don't want to step on until we get to them um but you know yeah i totally get it uh she's great did you feel like I felt like the change for Carrie also was sort of making her more believable as a teenager rebellion? Like she seemed more sheltered, oh, yeah. maybe even in the book. And in this version, she seemed more believable as a teenager rebelling against a, te- uh, a parent. And like, well, doing part of that, that is is the acceleration a movie kind of has to do. Like you have to get her to the point where she's willing to push back uh, on her mom more quickly um, and more directly than I think we saw in the book. Um, So yeah, there was definitely a shift there and it seemed to be kind of just like taken for granted. It's like, yeah, she's just a teenager. She wants to do her own thing and we're just going to have her do start doing it now. (laughs) Yeah. Um, Yeah. It works. Okay. It's just, you know, in the book you get more psychology, I guess, if you want to like track the, the thoughts of Carrie as she changes over time. I, you know, I think that's where the book comes in and, and does it well. So the uh, tampon throwing scene specifically, we talked about sort of the nudity at the beginning, but that scene I think is like pretty traumatic. And I think he was able to capture like a lot of, it was able to basically set us down the path of what the film would eventually become because it was such an intense experience. Kind of a wild scene too. Like, yeah. she, and this is kind of the another another thing that makes me feel like this movie was kind of strange is just how sort of unhinged it becomes at times. And when she's naked running out into the locker room, which is different. This is a change a little bit from the book too, right? Um, She is hysterically running up to people and like they are all turning to her and laughing. And the way he like shows all the laughing faces and they gather around laughing and throwing stuff at her. I don't know. Just the scene felt different to me. Um, Still obviously very traumatizing, but um you, I don't know, I felt less tied to the woman who is being bullied and abused here in the movie than I did in the book. In the book, like, I felt like I was in Carrie's shoes, which she's not wearing at the time, but you know what I mean. <laughs> and uh, I felt like I was getting attacked and bullied. 
Right. Whereas here, it was I was just observing, and I was like, "Wow, this is a wild situation, and um, clearly not great." Um, I don't know. Something about the empathy didn't feel like it was quite there in the way this was shot and, and portrayed. You know, it's funny too because, like, I think King was sort of trying to portray like not speaking up sometimes too so to put the viewer in the shoes of somebody witnessing this and not being able to do anything about it is pretty pretty powerful as well um i i do we got to move along here so i do want to talk about when they were when uh carrie gets locked up into this religious closet and um this like person this person who's on the cross it's the creepiest thing ever uh, is it jesus i don't know <laughs> no it's not jesus i can't it's i come, came to find out this so the arrows are i guess the the differentiating thing is it's it a saint, saint or something oh, okay I thought it was Jesus. I was like, this is the weirdest looking Jesus I've ever seen. So I agree. And I guess I should have realized that Jesus didn't have like five arrows in him or whatever. So I thought it was just some weird, different sort of yeah, like different interpretation where he got shot with a bunch of arrows. Yeah. <laughs> so it's St. Sebastian. I don't know much about that, but I do want that to be known that it's not Jesus, which sort of changes like how it's all interpreted. Because Almost it's like, comical eyes. Like the eyes on that figurine reminded me of Robot Chicken. Like I thought it was going to start <laughs> fucking walking around at any moment. <laughs> it was super creepy, man. I'm not going to lie. It still worked to be creepy and that that closet scene was weird not quite as scary as what it was in the book to me because it was a little more i don't know it felt like the the devil was in the room with her i guess you could say the saint sebastian figure was the devil but it was creepy yeah that starts a sort of um religious angle that this movie maintains which we can touch back on at the end where it leans into it a lot yeah. more heavily yeah, so this next section, plotting vengeance against Carrie, Chris and her boyfriend, Billy Nolan, break into a local farm and kill pigs to drain their blood into a bucket, which they place above the school's main stage in the gymnasium. Norma, Chris's best friend, plans to rig the prom queen election in Carrie's favor to get her on the stage. Meanwhile, Sue Snell asks her handsome and popular boyfriend, Tommy Ross, to invite Carrie to the prom. Carrie initially thinks the proposition is a prank, but he insists that it is genuine and she re- reluctantly accepts after Miss Collins consoles her. Back at home, she begins to discover she has telekinetic powers. Despite Margaret's protests, Carrie puts on a flattering dress and hairstyle for the prom. Margaret sees Carrie's telekinetic powers and denounces her as a witch after Carrie leaves with Tommy. During the prom, Chris and Billy hide under the stage while the other conspirators switch the ballots to ensure that Carrie wins the prom queen title. Yeah, so uh, I have a lot of little just moments from these this area that I want to talk about. Um First off, uh, just touching back on the house because we were just there. Um, there's a moment where she looks in the mirror and Jesus is like looming in the background looking at yeah. her. And then like later there's a shot that like I think was maybe a bit much where they like, really leaned into it. Like just in case you missed it, this is Jesus in the background. <laughs> I was like, okay, I got it. But I thought it was cool, you know, if maybe a heavy handed. And then there's this moment where the mirror sort of flexes. And it's sort of just supposed to be her first, not her first, but like her accessing her telekinetic powers. And then it does it again, even more dramatically. And I thought that was a really cool effect that clearly they're doing practically where they're flexing the thing. Right. Yeah, no, I thought that was amazing too. And then eventually breaks. And it's just like, it's it's just so fun to see that kind of stuff done because it's that Hollywood magic where like, you know, even when like eventually she's like closing windows and all this, I just love seeing that kind of stuff. Mm-hmm. Because it's it makes for like really exciting filmmaking. Uh, so moving on to another little scene that I didn't want to skip over. We talked a little bit about the poem, right? Their poem being read. But before he reads the poem, um, this teacher was filling me with rage. Yes. I wanted to throttle this man. 
how dare you behave this way as an English teacher? Um, I couldn't believe that he made fun of Carrie for saying that a poem was beautiful. I know. Um, what an asshole. First of all, it's a terrible t- thing to do as a teacher. And, and poet, poetry, like a lot of art, is subjective. So, like, to, to, to even attempt to, you know what I mean? Like, if it's not for you, it's not for you, but you don't need to tell a child or, like, you know. Yeah, she in- was like, it's beautiful. And then he, like, makes fun of her and everybody laughs at her for thinking that a poem was beautiful. Like, what a piece of shit. Anyway, that that one, like, triggered me big time. But, I so, I, I guess I'll talk about it now just because we brought up the poem and I don't know when we're going to talk about it again. I had a journey with it, right? Because I liked that he had written this thoughtful poem that she liked. I was like, ooh, this is kind of a cool change for Tommy a little bit, right? And we're giving us a direct reason why she uh, re- reacts well to it. And then it gave him something to bond over. And she asked him, why are you inviting me? Like, she thinks he's he's lying. And he's like, because you like my poem. Maybe because you like my poem. And I was like, oh, that's actually a gr- that's a cool addition. That makes sense. Right. Um, and then, yeah, fast forward, we get to the dance and um, he reveals that he didn't write. He's like, you like my poem, even though I didn't write it, um, which I was a bit frustrated with because I thought we were doing something interesting with Tommy subverting this sort of dumb jock persona he has. Um, I think he still does subvert a little bit, but taking the poem away from him, I I don't know. I just felt like it was a it was a frustrating decision. Like, why not just have him have written this poem? Right. It wasn't that great. It was um, kind of a gut punch for like no reason. Like you're saying, like it was yeah. just like why take that away from him at this it's point? Like, because yeah, like, just make him a dumb job. Plagiarizing. Well, we poem. know the conclusion of what's about to happen, and so we're like, he could have just like been had all these this redeeming quality, but instead we take the redeeming quality, and then something crazy happens to him. You know, yeah. I was just frustrated with it because I, I really liked that change to Tommy, and then it got undermined later in the movie. Right. Um, but we got to talk about John Travolta, who shows up in this movie. <laughs> I was like, holy fuck, John Travolta. <laughs> yeah, it's like his second film role, I think. What a what a crazy thing to have, you know, an actor who appears in a movie as kind of a smaller role who is going to clearly go on to be the most famous actor in, in, in this entire movie, right? Like, has this wild career where he's done a million things and is super well known i know it was rocky early on and he got he got very tied to being like a dancer and you know some of his early movies and um but you know he plays billy here and i was like i was all excited i'm like wow what's he gonna take to this billy role um they made billy a very a vastly different character in this uh adaptation i think more than margaret more than maybe any other character billy is completely changed he has a bit of that, like, sort of dumb meanness, a little bit, but it's wrapped up in this aw shucks, like, you know, winning smile, char- charisma that John Travolta has. We immediately feel kind of sorry for him in this relationship because it feels like he's being manipulated. Just a way different vibe from this character. Billy in the book is a just such a quintessential Stephen King asshole, dumb, mean dude that uh, is just not really present in this version. So if you if you have not read the book, um, I would recommend it just for that alone, just to see how different Billy is in the book. He's quite different. Yeah, it, it felt like a role that like obviously needed to be cut down for the film, but it was definitely like I, I was expecting him to seem a little more, like you said, like intimidating or like a threat in some way or, or you know, dangerous, just dangerous. Ultimately, like we got the scene of him killing the pig, which was still brutal. Yeah, but like not as brutal as the book, man. 
No, but it was still something to like. It was kind of played like, oh. for like some laughs. The camera doesn't linger. We don't get. It. I don't think we see any blood in that moment. Which maybe they're saving it for later. But like, I don't know. It's also only one pig, I think. Whereas in in the book, I think they kill three, um, one after another, which is really brutal. I don't know. Just that that scene. That scene was harrowing in the book. And here I found it to just be another scene that was okay. Like it, it was well done. It just was a stepping stone along the way. Not particularly memorable in my opinion. I mean, I felt like it was brutal enough because I don't, you know, I didn't love seeing a pig get killed, but it wasn't, you know, it's not, we didn't see the pig's head explode or something. Yeah, crazy you didn't like see it was, that, behind so not... a, it was behind a fence. We just hear a quick sound and then I think it cuts away. Pretty, pretty merciful as far as like a movie that otherwise, you know, shows a lot just weird to see Travolta like at the beginning of his career and this movie just kind of randomly and like you said I think I read that he like was he was in so at the time he was in Welcome Back Cotter and like he came from from set to like audition in his like Welcome Back Cotter like attire still I don't know what that movie is it's a no it's a, it's a show so it was just oh, like okay. what he had been doing what he was known for at the time mm. and then I think he was like second build on the cast list and stuff too so like he was like clearly Oh, so he was already kind of a name at that point? I didn't know that. From television, yeah. Okay, gotcha. There was an interesting sequence when they first introduced him, um, just from a filmmaking perspective, that I kind of liked. It was him in the car, driving with Chris, and we get this like little little multi-act play plays out as multiple cars drive up next to him, and he has conversations with people through the window. Yeah. <laughs> and then somebody throws him a beer, and then a, and then at the end, a cop drives up, and he has to hide the beer, and he spills it on her, and she keeps calling him a dumb shit, which he doesn't like, and they're having this kind of like angry back and forth over. And then he, the cops pull away after he's clearly been just like drinking a beer while driving. Um. Uh, and then he does this U-turn, and that's the end of this little sequence, but... The whole thing I thought was shot well. Like I could tell that they were in real cars um, for for like the sequences where they're like tossing each other stuff and talking. Um, you know, I don't I don't know if you'd be able to hear each other as well as they were able to hear. Um, but maybe <laughs> yeah. I don't know. Maybe I, I could just buy it. As a filmmaker, you have to. There's stuff on the page that you have to get on screen, obviously, and you have to find interesting ways to do it. So like. You know, to show that this guy's like a fucking wrong side of the railroad tracks kind of person. Like he's drinking like trying and driving, to yeah. he's driving and drinking beers and throwing it. You're getting a lot of information like very quickly. So I think it was, you know, I think it was effective in what it was trying to do. Yeah, I thought it was. I thought it was a good sequence. It was like, honestly, I wrote it down because I was like, this is cool. I do have to talk about the prom, though, since we're in the prom. And, like, uh, there's this shot that's, like, one of the most famous shots in the movie, I think. And that's, like, where it's just dizzying. It's, like, in circles. And it's where they're them. they're spinning. They're spinning, yeah. So I, said, I said the spin gets aggressive the longer it goes aggressive, on. It's aggressive, dude. So it, it went It starts from, out slow and, like, kind of sweet. And then it starts getting fucking aggressive. Yeah, it's interesting. Right? It's like ramping it, ramping up the audience's like expectations or something. But so they're on like a platform, I guess, that's rotating in one direction, and, the, and then the camera's dollying in a circle in the other direction. So then they oh, start so it to makes slowly it feel get, like it's going even faster than it really was. Yeah, and it starts to get, and I mean, it has like a dreamlike quality, which is something I want to bring up. Like the way that it's shot up, and all you can see is like the lights in the background. And it's, oh, the entire yeah, the prom itself felt like it was referencing other movies where prom is sort of the end dream result you want to go to prom with the guy we felt like this was carrie's dreams coming true it's colorful it's um interesting to look at it's beautiful like you know way better looking than like any real dance ever looks i assume yeah <laughs> like our dances always look like shit compared to no the dance dances, has right? a budget for that yeah for <laughs> yeah. high school yeah no way 
So that, that brings me to another thing is like, I think a lot of the lens choices and some of the lighting done in this film, like sort of makes you think of a dreamlike quality as well. There's sort yeah. of this bloom that you get sometimes from mm-hmm. like colors that are, people are wearing where it's like, it's almost like the edges of their, of their being is like sort of like blurred a little bit. And that comes from like the yeah. way that you light. Well, them. it's also soft, right? Soft right? lighting, like yeah. soft and warm and inviting. Right. And you know what's going on, though. Like, so at the same time, he's building this tension of, you know, there's this plot. Um, But during all of this, you know, it's doing the fun montage where it fast forwards, um, getting ready for the dance. Like, it's it's very romantic and um, light. And then but the, the implication, you know, it's that it's that isn't there like a famous Hitchcockian thing about like, um you know, two men having a conversation and uh, and then they blow up and like there's no anticipation there. But then like if you show the audience the bomb at the start right. of the scene, like then that completely changes the entire scene. I think you like show two different yeah. versions of the same scene. Um, and I don't know. I'm, I'm sure I'm fucking that story up big time. I, I know what you're talking about. That sort of idea. I think that's a Hitchcock quote or something. I believe We talked it. about that. Yeah. yeah. About, about like the nature of suspense. Basically, it's like you want the audience to know there's a bomb because if they don't know there's a bomb, then all the anticipation is gone. Whereas it, the same exact scene, if they just know that to get one shot of the bomb at their feet, completely changes it. And that's what the that's obviously what the, the bucket is. Right. That's the bomb in right. this in this uh, in this dance. Yeah, which, speaking of, we should get into that. As Carrie stands on stage with Tommy, Sue arrives just in time and realizes Chris and Billy's plan. Miss Collins spots Sue and thinks she is up to no good and throws her out of the prom. Chris and Billy pull the rope attached to the bucket of pig blood and douse her and promptly sneak out of the school. The empty bucket hits Tommy in the head, killing him. The crowd is left shocked and speechless at the prank. Carrie hallucinates that everyone is mocking her, and in a sudden outburst, she telekinetically seals the exits from the gym and controls a fire hose, which injures several partygoers attempting to escape and sprays the overhead lights setting the gym on fire. Miss Collins is crushed by a falling basketball backboard, and Carrie's principal and teacher are electrocuted. As Carrie walks home, Chris and Billy attempt to run her over with Billy's car, but Carrie senses their presence and causes their car to overturn and explode, killing them. Really quick, I, I did want to mention something I had been thinking of, and that's that I think that we talked about how in the book, Carrie, the, the buildup and sort of the fallout and the way that the story is being presented in the brackets of the sort of epistolary nature that we're getting the story, it sort of builds up all of this tragedy and like you kind of understand that so much innocent, so much of the people were innocent. And I think something about this film reframes it in a way that makes it feel like you're more on Carrie's side. And I think that's where some of that comes from. I think a lot of people have seen the movie and sort of think of Carrie as that character where it's almost all you're almost entirely on her side, even when she's killing people. And even though, you know, it's brutal and all this stuff, it seems like she's pushed into it even more so than than uh, in the book in some ways. And, and it feels yeah. like the only uh, like logical outcome, I guess, in, in this story that's been set up for us here. Yeah, no, I completely agree. I mean, I want to back up. There's a lot of talk about in this this sequence, right? And, and I said earlier, I assume this movie, or sorry, this movie, but also this sequence would be enshrined in like the Hall of Fame horror sequences. Um, easily easily it's so it's so masterful i mean like the weird techniques that are employed here to show like the the, the split screen specifically is like something that will stick with me forever and like like i said that that like rekindled in me i'd forgotten how effective it is with the buildup of the entire movie but the split screen of everything closing and she's covered in blood just staring with her very unique 
Like I've never seen an actor have that face before. Besides, yeah, well, I was I mentioned her her sort of expression and her look earlier. Um, just a you know the, you know the actor, but uh, Sissy Spacek. Uh, but when she's coated in red and her eyes just pop, that performance kills. She is so scary, and the way she looks at people, iconic. And then there's a moment where it shows her on stage. And the stage catches fire, right? Because the electricity is, has killed, I think, the pr- principal or the English teacher, maybe both. Um, and it start, it catches the stage on fire behind her. And when the, the fire blooms behind her and she starts walking, she's got her hands held out in this way that's like very, it's like looks like a mix between I'm manipulating the world and like clawed, but then also just like how you would stand if you were covered in something gross. It's like all three things at the same time. And she, she's walking slowly down off the stage and there's just chaos erupting behind her and that fire blooms. And I had like head to toe chills, like just seeing greatness. I was like, this is an amazing moment and, and um, something that definitely is worth the price of admission. Yeah. I, and like the, the scene goes on for an extended period of time. And just like so, like we've talked about the, all of the techniques that have sort of been built up throughout a little bit of split screen here. So some of the diopter here and there, and then it's all kind of comes together in this culmination moment. Yeah. And like, I love the most, the, so one of the things that sticks in my mind too, is like, of course, the, once the flames start, it's, it's so striking, but there's this moment too with like split screen and we're getting just like a close up of Carrie covered in blood and then the doors closing and people mm-hmm. dying and other things happening. Then we get a side by side shot of Carrie twice. And you're literally seeing like the close up of her and maybe like a medium shot of her. Mm. And it's like this crazy. And it's like it's like she's taken over everything at this point. everything. Both screens yeah. like that's how powerful everything is in that moment. Yeah. I just thought that was so cool. And like I couldn't get over it. I was like, man, that's great to, to cut to have two of a character on screen at the same time is like <laughs> two different, so slightly bold. different angles. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, it's something, man. And then um, there's there's also like that builds up, that builds up, that builds up. And then there's this they're all going to laugh at you repeated over and over again. And it's like her mom's voice, but it kind of gets like modulated and weird as it's repeating. So it's clearly like her mind replaying it and and, and using it to fuel her mental state um, and fuel her cracking. And um, that is a line that I had heard kids say. And they were referencing this movie. Um, so it's interesting to me. I'm like, who who is watching Carrie now? Maybe there's like a made for TV version of this that you could watch. That's probably what it was. Um, but I'm like, what kid that was like fucking eight or nine years old was watching this movie and then quoting that at me? Cause I remember young kids saying, they're all going to laugh at you. They're all going to laugh at you and repeating it from this movie. It's very odd. Hey, some people had different upbringings, you know? know, And I was a kid who was allowed to watch basically everything. Um, but still, like, I didn't know about Carrie to, like, seek it out. My parents wouldn't have just shown it to me. Um, so I, I missed it. But um, I don't know. Yeah, it, it's, a, it's, it's interesting to, like, all these years later finally get confirmation that it's from this movie. If you, had, if you had asked me what movie I thought it was from, I probably would have guessed Carrie. But, like, to actually see the scene now that someone was referencing 30 years ago, we did 20 years ago for me is, is, I don't know, pretty interesting. <laughs> yeah. It's funny how that always happens, right? Like it doesn't, it doesn't matter where you come into film. It ma- it's like, it's like, everybody's always trying to put the puzzle pieces together and figure it all out. And people are referencing things and yeah, I, I love it. It's like this endless journey that people are going on. Um, so much to talk about with this scene though. Um, the, the 
it took two weeks and roughly 35 takes to create. So 35 of not just like setups and everything like that, 35 takes of this entire scene, wow. which is just like madness. Like start over from the beginning and do it all yeah. again. Corn wow. syrup was used for the gallons of pig's blood. Um, Makes sense. Which happens a lot. But uh, to remain in the character's tormented headspace, SpaceX returned to her trailer after three full days of filming and would sleep in her gore-sodden wardrobe. This measure was also taken to maintain visual continuity in the film as the fake blood would often dry under the hot filming lights and stick to SpaceX body. So she just like kept going to her trailer after like wow. these days and days and days in a row of filming this stuff and just had that just like gunk all over her and just <laughs> sleeping in it. And this is like, Jesus. And like, the, um, I just, I can't believe that. It seems like a cruel and unusual punishment, but she, she, I guess, wanted to do that. Was she being made to do that or was she choosing to do that? That's no, the question. No, it sounds like she yeah. wanted to do that. And if yeah, she's she, choosing she, to do it, more power to her, you know? Like, that's, right. that's awesome. Um, I did want to, just you're talking about the red. Um, it made a line that was in the book work better in the movie. And that was when Margaret comes in to see her having, she's made her own dress. And she says, red, I should have known. And the dress is clearly not red. And then she says it's pink when really it's like almost white with like a hint of pink to it. Right. Um, and I think in the book it's described in a similar way and they have the same conversation. And clearly King was foreshadowing her being doused in red. But that line works so much better when you can just visually look at a dress and go like, who would call that red? And then that line sticks in your head to where when she gets doused in red, it seems like almost a prophecy that her mother was having. Yeah. Um, which, again, brings it back to that almost religious supernatural stuff that we're going to get into more. Yeah, we should get into that here, actually. After Carrie cleans herself at home, Margaret reveals that Carrie was conceived by marital rape when her husband was drunk, an act that Margaret shamefully admits she enjoyed. Margaret comforts Carrie and then stabs her in the back with a kitchen knife and begins to chase her through the house. Carrie levitates several sharp implements and sends them flying towards Margaret, crucifying her. Carrie then destroys the house and consequently perishes. Sometime later, Sue, the only survivor of the prom, struggling to deal with the trauma she has experienced, has a nightmare in which she lays flowers on the charred remains of Carrie's home with a for sale sign vandalized in black paint with the phrase, Carrie White burns in hell. Suddenly, Carrie's bloody arm reaches from beneath the rubble and grabs Sue's forearm. Sue wakes up screaming and her mother comforts her. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. This is almost a, uh, almost like a fourth act of this movie that comes in. Um, and it is the, the final confrontation between Margaret and Carrie. And it played out in a you know pretty interesting way. She comes home and she finds the house has been decorated by roughly 6,000 candles is my estimate yeah, a lot <laughs> um that are all lit and um i was like okay this is a very bizarre thing for your mom to have done while you were at the prom she doesn't see her mom anywhere so she goes up and gets in the bathtub and, and gets washed and there's a moment where she goes into the bathroom or bedroom or wherever it is and we see margaret hiding behind the door and then she goes in and has her entire bath gets completely clean comes walking back out, the door moves, and she's still there. <laughs> so she's been behind this door. Clearly, with all of the candles that she set up, she's a very patient person. She's just standing behind this door like a complete weirdo. <laughs> Margaret is so strange in this movie. <laughs> yeah. And um, and then they have this, yeah, they have this interaction where she, like, kind of comforts her, I guess, and then stabs her. And we they, they throw down, basically, over this, right? Um, and, uh, yeah, this, this, this moment where death by spatula happens because, 
uh, I think a spatula is one of the final things that just <laughs> impales. Her. De Palma was very, uh, he was very proud of the fact that he came up with this, this sort of like flying uh, kitchen utensils because uh, he felt that it would just have been anticlimactic for her to just like fall down dead because of the powers Grab and stuff. Grab her heart. So in the in the book, she slows her heart, which is a very cool detail, and I think um, it it works great in fiction. I can see why it's not visually as interesting. Um, this, I guess they the, did it, and in, in like uh, one of the one of the eventual remakes, they did it, and people were like not stoked not, about it, not feeling <laughs> it. Well, it's just hard to put it. It's like it doesn't work as well on on screen. And if you're gonna skewer somebody with a bunch of stuff, you're gonna make it look like religious allegory by like like crucifying them, stigmata through the hands, and yeah. There's a lot going on in the scene. Um, I think he is also referencing the rape. Um, that was my read of it because she is getting penetrated by all these objects, and the way she reacts is almost like she's in ecstasy. I felt I I, I definitely thought that as well. Um, so I there's a lot going on there, a lot to unpack. Yeah. <laughs> so I have something really interesting that I read that I've been holding on to this whole time. Apparently, according to this source. Uh, in order to add to the mother's psychotic character, uh, none of the Bible passages in the film are real. She oh. quotes Genesis chapter three to say that sexuality is evil. Uh, that chapter is actually the story of Adam and Eve eating the forbidden fruit. The Bible doesn't say anything that the mother does. Mm-hmm. I mean, that makes sense. It, yeah, I didn't recognize anything she said, but I'm also not someone who necessarily would. But like, you know, you hear Bible quotes and you're like, yeah, I've heard that before somewhere. And nothing she says here struck me that way. So. It almost seems like she's reading a different book, which kind of makes sense for her, right? Like, it's almost this invented version of Christianity that she's, she's you know, following. Uh, so, yeah, that makes sense. She, oh, she does a sign with the, uh, of, the, of the cross with the, with the knife. And I was like, that's a fucking iconic moment, right? So because, iconic. I just yeah. holding the knife downwards like that and holding yeah. it out is so like, it's such a reference to. Um, I'm going to bless you with this knife. I'm about to fucking stab you with. <laughs> making it something new. Um, the, uh, in the original script, a hail of rocks and boulders rained down on the White's house and crushed the structure to rubble. Uh, the sequence was filmed, but the effect of the rocks did not result in De Palma's liking, so the ending was changed. However, the rocks can be seen in the final shot of the film, aligning the White's house in the place of the charred ashes. Um, so another, and just on that detail, on that note, the, obviously this ending is very different from the novel, and, and apparently... Stephen King liked the ending of the movie better than he liked the ending of his own book. Interesting. Hmm. I wonder. I wonder. Yeah, if he still feels that way or not. Um, yeah. It feels like the kind of thing you would say to sort of market the film as well at the same time. But I don't know. He he supposedly really really likes this adaptation and and like thinks that they they did things that he wishes he would have from from all reports. I read that even as uh, as recent as like 2011 or something like that. He was he said as much in, in an interview. Okay. Uh, so from my perspective, this, this movie shifts to, um, a story where clearly God and religion and this Christian iconography has some sort of power to it. Exists Um, in a way. Yeah. It exists in a way because now, maybe you could say Carrie deliberately kills her in that fashion as like a mocking of that saint that she's had to look at. But then the way the entire house collapses on itself, it feels very divine. It feels like it was almost, you know, being s- smote by God. Right. Um, well, when I when I watched the film originally, I thought that that 
person being crucified was Jesus. And I was like, in the lingering shot of Jesus as the house is about to come down, I'm like, did Jesus just kill them? Like, did, is yeah. that basically what we, what, did Deus Ex Machina actually right. happen where it was like, in order to end this story <laughs> and defeat Carrie, like God had to finish the story? Right. Yeah, so Carrie, Carrie basically is killed by by the house um, as it collapses on her, um, her and her mom. Who you know, she kind of grabs her at the end. But like, that is a big change, right? Like, so in the book, we get no real indication that there's any merit to Margaret's b- beliefs. Whereas here, it it does kind of say like, yeah, Carrie was kind of an out of control witch who needed to be stopped. And you were right for doing it. You're like a martyr because it definitely positions her in this in the in the sort of a pose of a martyr. Um, and then you you sort of double down on that. Where at the end, Sue has a nightmare about Carrie, who then grabs her from the gravel and positions Carrie very much as like a monster. And we talked mm-hmm. a little bit about that in the book too. Well, but it was like, a dream though. Ultimately, it's a dream, but that's the last thing we see. And so the implication is that she she is a monster to be feared. She's haunted um, by her. Well, Sue is, but also just that Carrie is a monster to be feared. That's the last thing we see in the movie. It's it's sort of a reference to the It Lives moment that we've seen in other, a lot of other horror movies. Um, and it uses Carrie as the big bad in that role. Um, sure, it's notable that it's a dream, but like ultimately the I think the effect is somewhat the same. And um, that is just a different message to me, because if, if you look at it as what we talked about, like this movie is about feminine power, pushing back against like the patriarchy, but also pushing back against society and traditional religious no- norms that maybe are puritanical and, and wanting to keep women down, suppress women's bodies and control women's bodies. The book felt like a violent uh rejection of that idea and an assertion of power and the tragedy comes in where these two forces come together and everybody dies an entire town is destroyed here in, in a kind of an explosion of violence and here we get the brief explosion at the at the um the dance the moment where she kills Billy and Chris and I wasn't even sure if she knew what she was doing because like I don't even know how she would know that that's them um, maybe she does. I don't know. Um, but then we quickly get to the mother stuff. And then we have this showdown that's very personal, very small, um, which it is in the book, too. But then, like, she she um, kills her mother in a way that I wasn't sure if that was her deliberately positioning her to be like a martyr or if that was just like God. Right. And uh, and then the way the house collapses on her. I don't know how you can read that really as anything else. Maybe you could say she loses control of her own power and the house just like is so rickety and old it falls apart on her but it like falls into the ground in a very unnatural way um it just feels like the movie's saying god struck it down she's positioned as being kind of demonic and i got the heavy implication that the movie disproves of carrie like disapproves of carrie um which makes me feel like the messaging is now different right it's like saying um Women are doing this, but maybe they shouldn't be. Um, and I, I don't know how that, like, I don't know if I like that as much personally, whether whether or not King likes it, I don't know. It's an interesting point because what you're doing, though, is you're taking Stephen King's intentions and putting them onto 
De Palma's film, right? So you're saying that like De Palma going in wanted to make a film that was about feminism, which is something that specifically some that people were picking up on in Stephen King's film, which I think I don't think that I in the in the book, I'm sorry. And I think that De Palma didn't I I don't think that he was trying to make a feminist film necessarily like but he's adapting material that was intended that way. So 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 I think it's still valid to view it through that lens. Right. They changed her character and then put her into a situation to become like a scary sort of force of nature. And I think that that's what they wanted from audiences was to actually be afraid of Carrie, like mm-hmm. sort of be on her side until she's you realize how powerful she was and then be, af- be afraid of her. Yeah. And there is a, certainly an empowerment that happens from seeing a woman be the monster. You know what I mean? Like that, that's a powerful thing. Like so often we talked about in other projects, you see, uh, you see a white dude be the big bad. Um, you see a white dude be the slasher, be the, the, the serial killer. Um, so to see a woman be the monster, there's certain empowerment there that's going on in sort of a metatextual way. Right. Um, so I, I don't know. I just, it's, I don't think either King or De Palma was like, I'm going to think about this story in the terms of its feminist implications. Um, King has mentioned later that that is baked into it, but he also said in the same quote that like, you can read the story and, and engage with none of that if you want to. Um, and I think th- he he likes to play it both ways. He likes to have the implications there, but not be not be what it's about on the surface or like obviously. And so I, you know, maybe De Palma is leaning away from it in his mind. Um, I just still think that it's a valid view of this movie that you know centers a bunch of women's stories. Um, you know, all of our main characters are women for the most part. Um, and, uh, you know, it's ultimately about young sexuality um, rebelling against sort of old world puritanical traditional values. So I, I don't know how you can completely avoid that reading of it. Um, I, I think it's definitely there. Um, yeah, I, I'm, I'm sure that a lot more thoughtful, <laughs> uh, uh, well-researched, uh, you know, stuff is out there about this. I'll, I'll be curious to maybe look around and see what kind of stuff there is because I'm sure that lots of people have th- thought about this who are a lot smarter than me. Um, but yeah, I, I just found that to be a difference between the two versions. And uh, speaking of differences, I are, are we at the point where we want to pick our favorites? Yeah, I mean, you're giving me a lot to think about. Even if De Palma had a different reading on the book and wanted to avoid some of that stuff, I don't think that you can fully get away from it because like you said, it's inherently sort of a story about women coming of age and like um, that's baked into the story. So yeah, I, I don't know. So in this case, I'm very, I'm pretty torn. I like that this film is always going to be seen as like a monumental landmark f- horror film. I think like what De Palma did with it is it's notable and it's interesting. I think that he was able to create like a film that was experimental in like a big, bigger studio format at a time when people were ready for this, you know, you talked about how like King's story came out post Rosemary's Baby and The Exorcist and or before The Exorcist. Before right? The Exorcist, after Bo- yeah. Rosemary's Baby. So yeah. we're like, like De Palma is also grappling with that same stuff that's sort of in the zeitgeist at the time. Yeah, I think that this ultimately this movie stands tall for me and I'll always remember it fondly because of how how much more I'm able to understand what goes into the filmmaking process now and what the intentions were. But honestly, I think that if I was to talk about the thing that affected me more as a story, I'm going to go with the book in this case, which isn't normally the case. I, I And I almost took the movie. And um, it's mostly just because I think ultimately King created something that was more 
it was more moving. Like it felt more human. Like it f- I felt the humanity in the story, and uh, De Palma's felt a lot more like a like a fun trip to the movies that had a lot of uh, had a lot of like great filmmaking techniques and and some uh, really influential takes on on a horror film. Yeah. So coming into this, I felt like it was clearly the book. Um, in my opinion, was the better version. It wasn't really that close to me. Um, I will say this entire conversation where we really sort of explore the different filmmaking techniques and intention that was going on, um, it it has helped me appreciate the movie more. Um, And then we've talked about its legacy, clearly an iconic film in horror history. Um, So there's a lot to like here. Um, I I do feel like this conversation has made me appreciate the movie even more than than I was going into it. Um, but still it's not enough really for me. I I think the book is better. I think the book is quite a novel to have be your arrival onto the scene. The, the thing that helps establish you as the household name that you are today. Um, and to, to have written this book in his like early twenties, um, it's incredible, and a lot of what makes this movie great comes right from the book. Um, certainly, there's a lot that Palma brought to it, but um, I just got to I got to give it up to Stephen King here because um, this is like his him you know at his best. This is this is King killing it, and say what you will about him, and and he has a lot of critics, and he has a lot of things that are fair to criticize, but um, I think this is uh, evidence of him of greatness. And uh, I got to give it up to him. So uh, we are, sounds like we're in agreement. I thought maybe we're going to take the movie here, but we are in agreement. I almost did. You know, it's always tough when we come down to these decisions, but ultimately I'm taking the book in this case. And overall, the best part is that we got to enjoy it together. We got to read the novel and watch the movie now. And I think it's something important that we can, that we can look to in Stephen King's sort of legacy and also like horror movies. Like to have this more fresh in my mind is I think really important. Oh, hey. So if you are a listener and you liked uh, our our coverage of this and you liked our coverage of Stephen King in general. We've done a lot of King in the past. Um, first off, look back and see what other King we've covered. Um, there might be something there you want to listen to. But also let us know in a comment uh, or, or add us on social media what other... What what's the next Stephen King project you'd like to see us tackle? Because we're gonna we're gonna come back to him, right? Like he's a favorite of the podcast. He's got a million adaptations. There's a lot of big ones out there. Um, Misery uh Shawshank Redemption does this count as us me? biasing the the audience because I was going to name some too yeah yeah I mean is it I don't know there's so many right like and, and there's a million there's there's like dream catchers so there's like ones that are not as well regarded there's made for tv like there's so many Tons. that we could do uh it's over like this whole podcast could be about him if we wanted it to be but we we want to talk about other authors too <laughs> um and speaking of other authors we are going to be going on to another author so stick around to the end of this where we're going to announce our next big project um, but if you like this episode, please let us know in the form of a rating and review on whatever app you chose to listen on. Um, or if you're on YouTube, uh, leave a like comment. Like I said, let us know that you listened. And, uh, you know, the other thing that always helps us out is to tell somebody, if you know somebody in your life, who's a Stephen King fan who likes books and movies, tell them about the podcast and make sure to follow us on social media. We're on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram, all of those at ink to film. We have the council of inklings where we have recently posted our discord channel so if you wanted to be a part of the discord server uh 
head over there or we can send you a message if you wanted to just let us know on any other platform we can send that to you and the discord has been really fun it's been a way for us to interact with our listeners and keep it sort of a conversation between people who are interested and like-minded interested in the podcast and want to talk about some of the things around yeah. that feels a little bit more like you're in a your little clubhouse right yeah. than other fa- the other social media feels this is very it's less broadcasting your thoughts to people and more like getting to have an intimate conversation yeah, it's cool. And we'd love to have you on there. So yeah, all you have to have done is listen to, you know, a single episode and we'd would love to have you on our discord. So let us know and we'll send you an invitation. Um, also, if you'd like to support the podcast in another way, we mentioned before that we have a Patreon. We just did the haunting on there. Uh, the original sixties film, which had a lot of interesting stuff going on. And I thought we had a great conversation about it. Um, so if you're a horror fan, definitely check that out. Um, we are patreon.com slash ink to film. And we have lots of different tiers on there and different rewards. Um, so we'd love to have you. And thank you to Russ Bugden, as usual, for our intro and outro music. Okay, so all we have left to do is announce our next project. Um, and it's a big one. Literally. One we've been looking to for a long time. Yeah, it, a big one in every way. <laughs> yeah. um, we are we are going to be finishing the year out. For the most part, I think we got like one or two other episodes we're doing. But like our last big project of 2021 is going to be The Wheel of Time. Um, Amazon TV show, Robert Jordan novel, The Eye of the World, specifically, uh, you want to start reading. Um, we are going to be covering the book in three parts, and we're going to be covering the show, I think, in two. But we're going to have to talk about this more later. But, like, the schedule didn't work out uh, for us to be able to cover it concurrently with it coming out perfectly. So we're going to end up having to push, uh, I think, one, maybe two episodes to next year. Um, so we hope you join us for that. I'll, I'll actually post somewhere like the exact schedule once I have it in front of me um, and you can know exactly what we're going to do. Yeah, I'm really looking forward to it because I, I, I would be really bummed if we weren't able to find a way to, to cover it. So this was like the this was the way for us to be able to cover it. And hopefully you guys will enjoy the fact that we are covering it because otherwise yeah. it would have been maybe pushed way down the line or something. Well, and we have a very particular way of covering stuff like this that we want to do we want to do it right we want to do it the way that we have you know developed for the podcast the ink to film way if you will and yeah the the only way to do it right is to split it up a little bit which is we've never done before so we're a little bit hesitant but uh, hopefully you'll come along for the journey you'll be okay with us going away from it for a little while and then coming back to it in 2022 um but uh super excited about it Robert Jordan and The Wheel of Time is a very important series for me um, in my journey as a writer and just as a fan of fantasy. And I'll I'll definitely have a lot of nostalgia. I already started the book and I'm already feeling tons of nostalgia. So uh, I'll have a lot to talk about there when we get to that. And look forward to that coming soon. Uh, We are going to be taking off the week of Thanksgiving and putting out a From the Vault episode. So you'll be getting one of those in a little bit here. Anyway, that's a lot of housekeeping. Thank you so much for listening. And until next time, keep adapting. Thank you.